Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl, the former CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a best-selling author and currently a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. And if you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including The Tipping Point and Outliers. He's also the host of the podcast Revisionist History. Hi, Malcolm, and welcome back to Fixing Healthcare. Thank you, Robbie. Been delighted to be back. As you know, I am focused on the topic of leadership, and you've had the opportunity to interview and study dozens of leaders, both ones you'd probably label good and others you might call bad. Let's begin with the best. What makes them so successful? And is there anyone in particular who comes to your mind? Well, I mean, I I guess that the thing that struck me the most in talking to leaders over the years is how what a what a heterogeneous group they are. Um, that there isn't a thing called a leader. There's different times and places and organizations and problems that call for different kinds of leadership. And I think it's also the case that more than one style, I feel about it the same way I feel about, about you know, theories about education. I don't think there's only one way that works. I think there's actually a lot of ways it works. And what really matters is that whatever organization is educating people has a commitment to that philosophy. And so I would say the same thing about leadership that I'm, there's, I, I sort of feel like it's all, if you're, if you're the secretary of defense of you know, if you if you're the um if you're the if you're if you're in the air force, you have a different set of challenges and culture that you're working with than if you're the president of a university, right? If you're president of a university, your faculty is in a permanent state of open revolt. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't like, can't, you can't just give an order and people will snap into line. But you sort of can do that if you're the chief of staff of the air force. You can. But if we look at what's going on in Ukraine right now, mm-hmm. uh, you have a Russian force that's you know, being told what to do and penalty for not doing it is dying. So there's a lot of pressure to obey, but they're certainly not responding to leadership in the way they are across enemy lines. So I'm not sure that that ability to bark out order, orders um, is necessarily the defining opportunity to drive performance. Oh, yeah. No, I would agree with you. I would just say, if you wanted to, if you were the chief of staff of the Air Force, you could give orders and have people follow you. There's a there's a culture there that would support that. I don't think that's the best way to be the chief. And I'm sure that current chief of staff of the Air Force would say, that's not how I run the Air Force. But you, you could get away with that. My point is that there are other situations where you would have zero chance of success with that kind of leadership. Um, and so it's everything in, when I think about leaders, I think everything is so contextual. It's very hard to answer the question about what a, uh, what a great leader is. Did you ever talk with Colin Powell? I did, you know, I had, um, I chatted with him on a number of occasions because I was trying to figure out whether we were, there's a family legend on my mother's side that we're related to Colin Powell. I have a, 
great-grandmother, who was a Powell from Top Hill, the same town that his parents were from. Um, so I, I, I met him once and I brought this up and he, he first of all said all Jamaicans claim to be related <laughs> to me, which I think is true. But um, the, uh, I did now he, so he's an example, but he's, you know, he was an example of a, um, he was not the bark out orders kind of leader, right? He was someone with enormous amount of emotional intelligence. I agree. That's why I brought him up because I had the chance to meet him on two occasions, not as many as you, and totally impressed. I remember his talking about how he would never eat until his troops had, and yet he could have. He had the privilege uh, mm -hmm. to do so. Um, I think there's no question that he was able to create a vision that people could follow. He could motivate them to move forward. Um, people like that. And again, I don't want to talk about the specifics of what he did or didn't do or the specifics of his organization. I just think there are aspects that people share. And I would almost say across most borders, I suspect there are some countries in the world where leadership style is different than mm -hmm. in Europe or the United States. But over, overall, I see a common pattern of what they're able to accomplish despite the industries in which they, the different industries in which they work. Yeah. Although, I mean, I guess I would, I mean, let me just give a, a this is more playing devil's advocate than something else, than anything else. But um, if you have, do you think that the exact same suite of leadership skills are relevant in good times as in times of crisis? I think strategy has to change. Mm -hmm. Pace has to change risk tolerance changes but mm -hmm. once and i'll say the leader it's obviously a leadership team comes up with a clear path forward i think the skills overlap to a large extent that yeah. you know if you're going to continue what you've been doing what's made you successful that's a lot easier to explain to people I often tell individuals about leadership that it takes 17 times to hear a word in a foreign language before you know it. And it takes 17 times to hear a new concept. So if you're going to be changing the direction of the company, uh, so-called disruptive change, mm -hmm. that you have to say it again and again and again, as various leadership gurus have said across time. But... I overall, to get people to have confidence, to lose fear, to have enthusiasm, they have to have a belief and a purpose. You probably can motivate people in marketing and sales just with money. But in most aspects, I think the need to um, drive it through purpose sits there. I think that's what leaders are able to accomplish. Now, they accomplish it in different ways. Some are loud, some are very quiet, uh, some are very self-serving, some are going to be out there flamboyantly. But I think the goal, or the successful ones, the goal is going to be to be able to shift people's vision, change their perception, and then get them to be willing to take the chance to move forward uh, with the belief, and this is the good leaders, that once they've taken that chance and stepped forward, that they will never want to go back or never regret having taken the step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah.
How about bad leaders? You've probably encountered them as well. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts about them and what gets in their way? Well, I mean, the the obvious answer is, you know, some some version of narcissism uh, is, you know, it can look awfully enticing in the short run, but it's very, very difficult for somebody who is consumed with themselves to lead an organization over the long term. That's the kind of, um, but more, um, so that's a kind of malignant version. But I, I think a lot of bad leadership is not malignant in the sense that it derives from some pathology it's a bad fit it's the it's the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time um which you know which is you know i when i think about leaders <clears throat> i you know the 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 fundamental problem to my mind is that when times are good it's relatively easier obviously to keep everyone happy and the decisions you make are not nearly as existential as they are when times are bad. So I make this big distinction between good times and bad times. I mean, you know, you can go overnight from a situation. We 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 had a 10-year run in this country where money was basically free, right? Where interest rates were super low. And it was really, really easy for leaders to make all kinds of decisions under those circumstances. Now money's not free anymore. And suddenly decisions are getting really hard. People think that we're realizing, oh, we're too big or we're bloated or we have the wrong direction. There's, uh, I, I, I'm not convinced the same set of skills is needed in those. I'm not convinced that the set of skills that can help you thrive in the first case, the good times, is necessarily adaptable to bad times. I don't know. I'm. It's been so long since we had bad times that I feel like there's a a lot we can all learn for the, the moment we're in right now. You're a runner. When the wind's at your back and the course is downhill, it's a exactly. lot easier to keep running than when it's uphill against the wind. Yeah. I, I had a conversation, this, this would be of interest to with a friend of mine who works for a big hospital system, and he was talking about how, you know this, big hospital systems are in crisis right now, right? Like uh, they're losing money on public pay and they're essentially breaking even on private pay and they're getting killed by things like rising nursing costs and all those kinds of things. It's really, really hard to do that, to do the, to be the job of a leader in, in sort of uh, uh, American healthcare right now in a way that it just wasn't five years ago. When you're facing that kind of reimbursement crunch, I mean, it's just like when you have to fire people and not hire people, when you have to say no way more times than you say yes, when you have, you know, when you're dealing with morale problems on top of financial problems, you know, those like, that's, it strikes me that that's just a different animal. I tend to see what's happening in hospitals right now as being a reflection of years of neglect. Mm-hmm. There's been no innovation. There's been no change. Hospitals should be far smaller, focusing on intensive services. They should have a major at-home component. They should have a really effective outpatient. Not today. I don't know how much into the weeds you want to go, but they're now paid more to do the same services. 
as doctors in the community are just simply because they're attached to a hospital. They have a tremendous capital cost of which they basically shut down on Saturday and Sunday rather than any other factory that would those high intense capital would stay open. And mm-hmm. what they figured out is that by using monopolistic tactics, because the law says you have to have hospital services within 15 miles or 30 minutes of anyone you want to sell an insurance policy to, they figured out how market consolidation has allowed them to raise price. But when I look at performance, it's no better. And then I think that across time, what's happened is they've put the pressure on the people inside to make up for that inefficiency when they've had to do that. And so you see massive burnout, both at the nursing side and at the physician side. And then the, you know, the, the match to the tinderbox was uh, COVID and yeah. the tremendous. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I have less sympathy. I think just change should have happened. It should have started. It's not five years. It's really about 20 years. But certainly 10 years ago, the opportunity to change should have happened. And now it's stuck in a situation where it can't keep raising prices and it can't yet figure out how to make the changes and has a dissatisfied workforce. Put those pieces together. I don't know any organization or company or industry that's capable of doing well and as you say, the hospital industry right now is suffering as a consequence. Mm-hmm. When I look at you know the analogy I'm thinking about as you're talking is, if you look at what the automakers in Detroit went through right around the financial crisis in 08, where, and also in the years leading up to that, where they had to transition from a model where they were, you know, they had these structural, huge structural issues, which was they used to be massive employers and automation meant that they were producing cars you know with a fraction of the labor that they used to which meant that their they had a larger retiree pool than they had workforce right the yep. the, the the leftovers from the 50s and the 60s were and the and they had to support that um based on a a shrinking market share domestically and they weren't making very good cars and there there was a kind of a there's a there's a kind of a ten year window where GM in particular GM and Ford have to kind of completely reimagine what they do, have to restructure. GM goes through bankruptcy, goes through some incredible painful things, and emerges on the other side as a, a world class automaker, a money making world class automaker again. But that like that ten year window when they were when they were moving out of the old model into the new model super, super painful. I mean, it brings the city of Detroit to the brink of ba- to bankruptcy to it. You know, it's a, it involves Congress. It inv- I mean, it's like, it was like, it was a trauma. And I, I, you know, I don't know whether part of me thinks we're going to go through something similar with institutional healthcare is we're going to have to. And what I, the, to go back to our original leadership question, I don't know the answer to what is the best kind of leader of a healthcare institution to help us through this 10-year traumatic period that maybe we'll have to go through? The experience in every industry with monopolistic control is that uh, innovation dies and leadership falters. And I think that's what you're seeing. Your analogy to the auto industry is perfect, Malcolm. You can trace it all the way back. You know, We came out of World War II. The U.S. produced 70% of the cars in the world. We had a huge amount of dollars available. 
that got funneled into healthcare because of the tax advantages that sit in place. Uh, automation was limited. Um, the unions became increasingly inflexible and it got displaced by the Japanese and by other international producers of cars until, as you say, it came to a crisis and hopefully is looks like it may be coming out right now, it's certainly doing far better than it was back then. So yeah, I think the analogies are extremely uh, overlapping. And as a consequence of that, I think that you're absolutely right. We're gonna, we're gonna see that now. We're gonna see rural hospitals closing. We're gonna see small hospitals closing. We're gonna see the bigger hospitals trying to get by through price increases. And at some point as they get displaced, I think the displacing force is gonna be the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, Walmart. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at the, at the industry in great detail, they're acquiring all of the pieces, not to be complements to the healthcare system, but to totally replace it. They all have insurance arms. They all have pharmacy arms. They all have delivery system arms. They've acquired major primary care groups. They're expanding nationally. Uh, and I think and they have hosp uh, home care hospitals at home. I think you're going to see within a decade that it's going to be the retail giants that come in they're going to become the providers of care, the employers of choice. Already, United Healthcare has 60,000 physicians that's capable of taking care of 10% of the entire American public. And what they're going to do with the hospitals, they're going to say, we don't need five hospitals. We, we only want one. And in mm -hmm. fact, you know, we're going to send you to the Mayo Clinic to do have your surgery done because the results are better and complications are lower and costs are more reasonable. And so your local community hospitals are going to start to shrink. And it's going to be out of that that someone will now step forward with a more innovative approach, and they will become the organization for which this retail giants contract. And out of that, I think you're going to see the transformation, the improvements in performance that are necessary. Yeah. So here, I mean, to 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 jump on what you just said, what's interesting there is that you see the the force for. Um, for uh, innovation and transformation as coming from people who are outside of the industry, a different set of, different kind of experience, a different mindset, um, a different position in the economy. Um, outsiders come in and they see the logic of where the system should move. So that goes to my point. So in this case, for their, for the, the new kind of what you're arguing, and I, I would agree with you, is that the new kind of leader that we are looking for in healthcare would be somebody who is not a healthcare person, who can see, who sees a sees a different kind of worldview than the traditional. I'm not saying can't be, but I'm just saying who it's easier for them to imagine a radically different future because they are not tethered to a set of traditions and systems of ways of doing things that are no longer relevant. So we're asking, that's a different kind of leader, right? That's a, that's somebody with a different perspective, different training, different experience. Um, that we didn't see, interestingly, we didn't see in the automobile transformation, we didn't have outsiders do it. We It ended up being done by insiders. That was interesting as well for, for different reasons. But that moment when you have to import someone from the outside who just sees the world differently is a really a super interesting one. Um, and it's always hard for like I, you, another here to, to give another analogy, another 
analogous industry that's going to go through a crisis exactly like this is higher ed. And how how much hiring outside of academia do universities do? The answer is, in terms of their, of their leadership, the answer is almost none. You name me, I mean, actually, I know of one, but you name me a major college president in the United States right now who is not him or herself a former academic. Really hard. You're absolutely right. But the in, intrinsic in a lot of industries of which, to me, three of them that are the most problematic is healthcare, education, and religion. Because in all three of them, there's a break, a certification process, a knowledge process. You can't be a change agent inside healthcare unless you have enough money, capital, uh, capability sitting there. The idea of just the person coming in, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm writing these days, I, I, I talk about, don't tell me what should be, because what should be usually doesn't happen. Tell me what will be. And so again, education is a great example. And I, you know, you're an expert in this. You've written extensively, and a lot, a lot of your podcasts have, have covered this area. It's we know the system is broken. We know it's not working for people. We know how many people are finishing. In fact, a recent study said they wish they hadn't gone to college because the skills they got were not worth the cost that it was to do it. But who's going to make the change happen? Because if you get your degree on some online program, you could be a lot smarter, a lot better, a lot more skilled, but you don't have that Ivy League degree. You know, why do the Ivy Leagues charge so much? Because of the reputation. There's not any evidence that if you took, as you've pointed out, you take the same students, you put them into a good state school, they might do just as well or better as a consequence. But mm -hmm. it's that halo that sits there. And I think that that's what's going to change. You know, you talked about the auto industry earlier and the fact that it went through 10 years of dismal existence. I think that healthcare is going to do that. I think you actually could change it coming in from outside. Clay Christensen in his innovative dilemma talks about this and why almost always disruptive change comes from the outside because the people inside do too well as a consequence of the yeah. rules that exist. And yeah. so to ask them to give that up in the short term, particularly in a world of rapidly changing CEOs, uh, they're not going to do it. They just can't do it. Their board will be unhappy. Their shareholders will be unhappy. Maybe at the end of the line, it will be better, but they're never going to get to the end of the line. So they don't change. And then someone comes in and disrupts them. And that's what that's what I predict is going to happen sometime over the next decade in healthcare. So one thing that I've noticed since the pandemic, and it's been very apparent to me, like even on my recent trip uh, to and from Chicago, is that every restaurant, fast food place, gas station store, uh, you know, retail store seems to be desperately looking for staff. When you go into these places, the level of service has gone downhill so much. There's so many more mistakes that are made. As a consumer, it's so frustrating utilizing these places. It almost seems like half the labor force disappeared from the planet during the pandemic. Uh, at the same time, I've been in management for years in my career, and currently I'm a business owner, and Gen Z and millennials tend to uh, go to a job with the approach that what can this job do for me? They owe me the time off I want. They owe me the salary I want. Whereas my parents' generation had a certain loyalty towards their employers because they gave them money to take care of their family. They offered them opportunity. Those younger generations 
uh, with few expectations, are notoriously lazy, entitled, and take real like no real ownership over their jobs. That being said, a father working at a factory could often support a family on one income when my parents' generation, where that doesn't happen anymore. So my question to you is, where has the labor force gone? Who is at fault for the labor force not uh, buying into their organizations anymore? Is it the millennials or the leadership of these organizations or just cultural changes? And how do we fix this? Yeah. Well, everywhere I go, I hear people echo the complaints you have. Um, so I don't think it's, um, I think there's a pretty widespread concern about, I do think it's a weird, we should be cautious about making generalizations based on what's going on in this moment. We have two weird things that just happened that are probably without precedent. One is we had this 10 year run of free money and which distorted everyone's decisions, including um, you know, people who were entering the workforce for the first time. We had, you know, the the millennials behave that way, not just the younger generation, exhibit some of the characteristics you described as a rational response to the fact that they happened to enter the workforce at a time when it was the greatest job market maybe in American history, right? I mean, and if you enter a job market where everyone is competing for your services, then you then you have the freedom to demand more, right? That just makes perfect sense. So one, there was that thing. And then the second thing was COVID, of course. And COVID had a power, has, I think we're beginning to realize, had a powerful and um, enduring effect on the kind of, uh, on the psychology of particularly young people in the workforce, right? At a time when they, by rights, should have been inside a community learning from um, others around them. Um, they were not. They were isolated and at home and entering, making the most significant transition of their life without the normal kind of scaffolding that people have had around them when they make that transition. So are they going to behave a little weird as a result? Yeah. They, they, they were, they're the children of two very super weird moments. And on top of that, you have a demographic thing, which is the baby boomers are retiring in droves and you have these gaping holes in the workforce that we're not prepared for and you've got a crisis. But I don't think it really says anything about particular about the younger generation. It's just, it's a circumstance. It's just, it's a, it's three very particular and dramatic trends happening on top of each other that have the effect of, of radically altering the kind of uh, structure and feeling of the job market. But let me let me shift, Malcolm. If it's okay, uh, because I'm obsessed these days with ChatGPT. Although actually, it's now GPT four, mm -hmm. and the power that generative AI can have in every facet of society, including healthcare. Let me begin by asking you: Is this technology something that you think of as a massive opportunity or a dangerous threat? I mean, obviously, an opportunity. I mean, the smart answer is. Could, it depends on how we choose to use it, incorporate it. But I think the upsides are probably much greater than the downsides as a way of complementing and uh, in kind of inflating expertise. It's incredibly exciting, right? I think of these kinds of things as, as technologies that lift the floor of expertise. So me plus 
GPT-4 is a lot smarter than me alone. And there's a whole series of industries in, the, in corners of the marketplace today that are hampered by the fact that they have, um, you know, their level of expertise is uh, is mediocre, not up to. I mean, think about if you're a if you're a uh, a farmer in an impoverished country on an impoverished corner of the United States, what kind of access do you have to specialized advice about the particular crop conditions and you know what have you agricultural techniques you need to follow? It's probably pretty pretty low the quality of that advice, right? You, tools like this are an extraordinary way to bring the level that level of average advice up by an order of magnitude. And that's like if you're looking for a productivity, an engine of productivity, that's the answer, right? I don't think of Chat GPT as changing the 90th percentile. I think of it as changing the 50th percentile. And there's just so much more activity and so many more people at the 50th and the 90th that you begin to see how extraordinary the impact of this could be. I ask because the phrase you used of being a compliment and augmenter is what doctors have told themselves for a long time. Me plus ChatGPT will be better than me alone or ChatGPT alone. But you know, you're a brilliant writer, a podcast host. Do you believe that this technology, not ChatGPT, but future generations of a generative AI will ever be as skilled as you? So suppose uh, I do something and I'm in a rush and I spend half as much time on it as I use, as I typically do. Could some augmented version of myself bring my work back up to par? Yeah, I can see that. Would it be as do as good a job at coming up with new story ideas? Maybe, although I would have the only part of this that I'm doubtful about is whether is the truly kind of radical, unusual, unpredictable story idea. I don't know. How, I don't. I, I don't have a clear sense yet of how generative AI could help me in that respect. But the, there's a whole series of things that it has no relevance for. So persuasion relationship building, you know, to bring this back to healthcare for a moment, the number of times in healthcare where the healthcare intervention fails because the patient is non-compliant is, what is it? An insanely high percentage, Very high. right? Very, Very high. high. That's a failure of relationships and persuasion, right? The patient doesn't, either doesn't understand what the doctor is telling him or her or um, is incapable of following through or is sufficiently alienated from the system that they don't feel the need to. There's all kinds, we can come up with all kinds of reasons. Those aren't things that that generative AI can fix. Those are things that human beings can fix. So if we, you, if we to redefine the job of the doctor as saying the technical expertise is going to come overwhelmingly from AI, but that leaves you with the in much harder and in some ways much more important task of forming a bond with the patient that ensures the patient um, has some level of understanding and compliance and trust in the system they're engaged with. So I, I don't mind that trade. We should have been we should have done that trade years ago. Like that idea of rethinking what a 
what a doctor's job is. And by the way, I can do the same. I could make the same argument in across many different professions. There was an argument I saw recently. There was a big fight in New York about whether they should relax the uh, the physical fitness requirement for New York City police officers. All kinds of people said, do not do that. You can't have out of shape police officers. And my first instinct was, that's absolutely right. You can. My second instinct was, actually, no. Relax the physical fitness requirement. Let's redefine, a police officer is no longer that big, strong, burly person who dispenses, you know, at the scene uh, uh, justice through force of physical will. No, then there's somebody who needs to be able to talk to people and relate to them and understand them. And those are things that it didn't matter whether the person is is completely fit or a little bit overweight or whether that person can run a mile in seven minutes. That's not what we're interested in anymore. It's not the 19th century. Now all of our all of our problems with policing are about the failure of of some kind of social connection between the people being policed and the police has broken down. It's a really good step if we say, as part of understanding how to fix that problem, we stop worrying about irrelevant things like how many pounds can a police officer bench press? I would love to offer some counter thoughts, if that's okay with you. Uh -huh. And you're describing in the police example, mm -hmm. Problems created by humans. Uh, you've talked, you know, you've written extensively. You have podcasts about uh, police stops and the way strangers interact or fail to interact well, and that's a skill that we need to develop. But it's a skill that comes out of either a failure in emotional intelligence, maybe it comes out of a bias, uh, subconscious racism. We can or systemic racism, we can talk about all the potential mm -hmm. etiologies. But I'm going to argue with you that it's actually the opposite, that what the generative AI can do, because it's a predictive um, mode of uh, analysis, is it actually can stop doctors from making mistakes. It can observe a physician and predict what the next step should be based upon evidence. And when mm -hmm. a doctor skips that step, is able to inform the person at the time, and it wouldn't surprise me, it's more of an area of your expertise, that that same technology could apply to the police area. And I'm not talking about what exists today. This is a toy compared to what's going to exist. We know mm -hmm. that the power of generative AI is doubling every four to six months. Uh, within five years, it'll be 30 times more powerful than 10 years, it'll be a thousand times more powerful, assuming the pace continues. And I would argue that that relationship actually is beyond what doctors can do because they don't have the time. That mm. You're going to have an assistant in your home who every morning is going to talk to you. Uh, I don't know if you have any medical problems, but if you have any, it's going to monitor that and make sure you have the preventive services you need. It's going to deal with your diet, with your exercise. It's going to be a constant uh, companion inside the medical care and you're only going to need the physician actually for the interventions that the machine can't do. It can't do surgery, can't pass a catheter into your heart. But in terms of being able to engage with you around some of the lifestyle issues, the ways to improve your health, the ways that it actually can help you better manage chronic disease, avoid heart attack, strokes, and cancer, 
I actually think this is going to be a tremendously disruptive force. Mm -hmm. And everyone I've talked to in medicine has said AI is going to be a supplement to doctors. I think the day is not far away. And I mean that within two decades when it actually will start replacing a significant number. Not all doctors, but maybe a third, maybe half. Certainly, I think it has the potential to fill in the gap for this notion that we're short physicians. We're not short. We're short physicians if we keep doing things in inefficient ways. But if we're yeah. able to use improved, more effective, more efficient approaches to care, we actually may have more than enough today, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I don't think we're... I mean, I think what we're saying is versions of the same thing. I, because I would only say... I ex I actually accept your vision of what AI could do in terms of of changing healthcare. We are still left with the motivational piece, right? So right now, lots and lots of people know what they should be doing in terms of their diet and their exercise and don't do it, right? So if I give them a better way of telling them what they should be doing, um, there's no guarantee that just by delivering that system in a fancier mechanism or a more sophisticated mechanism is going to change the underlying problem, which is they don't want to do it, right? They prefer the taste of potato chips to broccoli. They don't want to go for a five-mile run when the weather's 28, you know, 25 degrees outside. They're, for all of those kinds of things, we, we continue to have the fundamental problem that people are difficult to reach, hard to motivate, resistant to change. And for, I think those kinds of things, person-to-person -person relationships are always going to be the only path that we have to reach people. So if we're freeing up doctors, in my perfect world, the doctor comes and sees you once a week and sits down and has a conversation with you and talks you through the things that the AI is telling you to do and teaching you and but it and it's and it's the it's that kind of bond that's created from that once a week meeting that empowers you to do what you should be doing. That's a better system than we have now, in my mind. I like that thought of freeing up that much time to be able to accomplish it. One last thought in this area, um, as you know, I love your writing and I love your thinking. And what I love about it is that you're able to find the cracks in something we've looked at a lot of times, and you're able to find the place where there's just a unique view that is different enough that it stimulates the thinking. And I was listening to a program on um, generative AI, and they were talking about how in chess, often generative AI will create a move that every grandmaster looking at it will say that was really stupid. And then 20 moves later, they'll say it was brilliant. It was mm. so creative. How could it have come up with that? And that's when I asked you the question about whether it'll ever be as good as you, uh, not at writing a book necessarily, but at coming up with a unique idea that somehow the pieces of the puzzle that we've all looked at don't quite fit together in the same way. And how are you going to know when actually it is that good? And you need to turn your podcast over to your AI assistant. Well, chess, by the way, this is, you've touched on a little pet peeve of mine, which is 
the use of chess. Chess is off. We all we, people when they want to make claims about um, expertise or, or any other, often turn to chess as their analogy. And I would only say that chess is just about the worst analogy for any kind of broader claims about human expertise because it's it is an enclosed world with a set of very clear and strict rules that you know where every piece behaves in a in a uh, in a predictable way and the game is played by a tiny 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 portion of the population it's like it's like the it's like the it should be the last place we turn for any kind of analogy <laughs> like i would rather turn to like board games for analogy than if we want to use it if you want to use a game or it's just not like it's it, it's no surprise that the first great triumphs of AI were chess, right? Because that's exactly the kind of thing that you would expect it to. Um, I'm always I'm always uncertain about what chess analogies tell us about the actual world that human beings inhabit. It ties back to that point I was making earlier about about medicine that the this kind of trust and compliance part, it's more than half the problem. It's like we're living in a world where a significant portion of people don't even want to take vaccines anymore. Like this, if we redefine what medicine is, is medicine is that the doctor is someone who is responsible for healing us, but more importantly, not just healing our body, but healing our relationship to the world, right? The, the people who reject scientific progress or vaccines, what have you, are people with a broken relationship to science, to progress, right? That I think part of the role of the doctor is to is to fix that problem. And that's a human problem that is solved by humans. Two last questions, Malcolm. First, mm -hmm. you've done a ton of research and had an entire revisionist history show on self-driving cars. Mm -hmm. And my sense is that when a driverless car kills a person, people say to themselves, I would have known that was a kid on a bike, not a tree or a sign but they pay very little attention to the 50,000 victims of driving accidents each year in, in human-driven cars, unless they know someone in one of them who was killed. Mm -hmm. And I keep focusing on how, when it comes to people and machines, we sort of have these two baselines, zero, for, zero mistakes for self-driving cars, 50,000 deaths for humans. Those are the starting places, despite the fact that they're obviously quite different. And I, again, I, I raise it because when we look at patient safety, we know there's 200,000 people who die every year from a preventable medical error. I believe that this technology could dramatically reduce it. And yet my sense is that when the first patient dies from a mistake, people are going to go absolutely bonkers because a machine killed a human, but they ignore mm. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people where humans I'll say kill another human or harm another human, not intentionally, but as a consequence of their action. Based on what you've learned in the self-driving car world, will we be able to get past this? Well, first, do you agree it's a bias? And second of all, will we be able to get past it? It's totally a bias. And I think we'll get past it. It's because what people are responding to, you know, you hear some story about the Tesla driving on a rainy road, doesn't read that there's a tractor trailer crossing ahead, smashes into it, guy dies, right? I mean, we know that, we've heard that story before. What are we reacting to when we react to that story? It's not that we are 
weighing a death caused by a machine far more heavily than a death caused by a fellow human. It's that we're responding to the novelty of the of the threat. And this is a pretty consistent thing across a broad number of experiences that lots of times when people react uh, negatively to something new, they are, that is not actually what they're, they're not, they're not actually expressing their disapproval. They're expressing their surprise and puzzlement, right? I've never seen that before, right? Why does the analogy, why does, when people first saw Seinfeld, why did it get some of the lowest uh, audience ratings that in that era of television? Not they said they hated it. They didn't mean they hated it. They mean they meant they'd never seen a show like this before, and it would take them a little time to warm up to it. It's a common phenomenon. I write about it in in um, one of my books. I don't remember. Oh, in Blink, I talk about how the Aeron chair, when it was first introduced, the best-selling chair in history, when it was first introduced, got the lowest marks I'd ever seen from people in their audience um, tests. That's not, they said they hated it. They didn't mean that. that. They meant was, I've never seen a chair like that before. So our response to these early deaths from self-driving cars are along those lines. It makes sense. As human beings, it takes us a while to get comfortable with something. We're not yet comfortable with the idea that our machine will kill us. We're very comfortable with the idea that another human being will kill us, right? To the point we're almost blasé about it. Not yet there with machines. We will get there in short order. And then we will quickly realize that it's a good trade to go from being killed by a person to being killed by a machine, right? That risk is positive in our direction. Uh, um, so I don't worry about that. The problem I highlighted in my uh, in my revisionist history episode on this was that I don't know how uh, self-driving cars work in an urban environment because they're too good. They will always stop if a human being does something untoward. So how do they, I was I was thinking about Hudson Street where I lived in the West Village for many years, the, the main drag down the, through the West Village. If every car on the road is a self-driving car, then everyone will jaywalk all the time because you know the car will stop. Kids will play soccer on the road. Runners will do their running down the middle of the road. It'll be mayhem. It doesn't work. They're too good. So it's like, so I mean, that that's actually a significant problem, which no one in the world of self-driving cars has an answer for, except to say the only way to fix that problem is to make them less good. If we thought that the error rate in a self-driving car was less than 99.99999%, we wouldn't jaywalk in front of them, right? Because we know we would be taking, the reason we jaywalk is we know they'll see us. That's how good they are. <laughs> it's, my favorite, it's my it's my favorite um, unintended consequence. Exactly. So last question. Malcolm, you're a relatively new father. Has that changed mm -hmm. your view of the American healthcare system? Of the American healthcare system? Well, your, your, well, your child you know, needs healthcare. You've probably yes. gone to the doctor a lot more in the first uh, year of life than you um, I have. I've gone in your past decade of your own life. So well, that, has, that, the, has that changed it? Yes. So the conversation we have just been having is in large part a reflection of my experiences over the last year and a half of my daughter's life. And also my experiences over the last five years, 10 years of my mother's, my mother's now in, in her 90s, observing people at those ends of life 
you realize that what you really want from the healthcare system is reassurance as much as anything. And someone who's listening to novel problems, right? You have a baby, you have a series of things happen that you've never seen before and you get terrified really easily. And what you want is someone who you can call on the phone or email and who will respond really quickly and tell you it's gonna be okay, <laughs> right? That's what you want. My mother will tell me the exact same thing. What she wants from a doctor is, she doesn't want some life-saving technology. She's 92, she accepts the fact that, what she just wants is that someone who listens to her when she goes to the doctor and takes her seriously and doesn't dismiss her because she's a 92-year-old woman. That's what she wants, right? The both At both ends of the, of the system, what we want is human interaction as well as obviously some kind of expertise beyond that. But the thing that, the crucial thing is that there has to be some relationship in place. And if we don't have that relationship in place, then what are we, what are we left with? We're left with anxiety. And that, I, another way where I would like to redefine the mission of um, healthcare is it is not to, uh, it is the healthcare system's goal is not to make us more, or it's not to make us healthy, because that's impossible, right? But as it, if its goal is to make us less anxious, then I think that's a worthy goal. I actually think that should be the goal of government as well. The goal of government should be to make us less anxious. Um, that that's what we want. What we we don't we don't want. We know that our government can or our doctor cannot ensure that we'll live forever. We know that they can't prevent us from getting all manner of illness. So we don't have, realistically, we don't have the expectation they're going to work miracles with us. What we want is someone who can reduce our anxiety, who can speak to us honestly and openly and, and, and clearly, right? That's what we want. Who will pick up the phone when we want someone to pick up the phone. And do I think we're moving into a world where that's more likely? I do, actually. That's why I'm excited about it. Now, I would not, to answer your question, would not have given that response prior to having uh, a baby. Well, thank you, Malcolm. Thanks for being our guest today. You've given me lots to ponder and to consider, and you've opened my eyes to how rapidly the world is changing and the types of ways that we need to be different in the future than we've been in the past. Best of luck on the Revisionist History series. I can't wait to hear it. Thank you, Robbie. This is really fun. Bye-bye, guys. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast.